0: Amen. If you have your Bibles today, we're going to look again in the book of Malachi. Um, For those of you who use social media, uh, have you ever wondered if the people you follow have like a multiple personality disorder? I mean, I mean seriously. For instance, on Facebook, you know, a person I'm friends with just the other day was posting about how much they love Jesus and how he was everything to them, and just a couple of days later, they posted their horoscope and said, "Now my life finally makes sense." I'm like, "What is with that?" Or, or maybe on Twitter, you know, how people will read you version and post the verse of the day so that people know they're reading their Bible, you know, and and, and then just a couple of Tweets later, they'll rant about something in just a little pithy, like, Ur-urr. what are they doing with that? Or, or I had a friend at my former church, he would talk about how much he loved Jesus and send these paragraph-type things that would touch your heart and then make you feel guilty because if you didn't post to 10 people, you'd go to hell or something like that, you know? And then he would send, then he would send out literally within minutes a dirty joke, And I was like, that just doesn't make sense to me. It amazes me that people can move so quickly from God being the center of their universe to Him being completely irrelevant in their life. That's what's going on in the book of Malachi. Malachi was written 450 years before Jesus walked the earth, and the people were struggling in their worship of God. They had forgotten how much God loved them, and they were doubting His goodness. And, and so when they would come together in worship, they were offering Him less than their, their best. And this was influencing how they were living. You know, the interesting thing to me is they were still coming. They, they kept showing up consistently, but it was making almost no difference in their everyday lives. Obviously, that was unacceptable to God because worship is supposed to affect us 24-7. Our lives should be consumed in worship of our God. It should affect what we type on Twitter. It should affect what we post on Facebook, what we send in an email, but it should affect how we drive as well. It should affect how we talk to our children. It should affect how we handle our employees or handle our business or how we work. It should affect every area of our life, And I, I think, maybe I'm giving us too much credit, but as a pastor, I think most of us want that. We want God to affect every area of our life because we know if we follow God, life goes better. I think that's what we want. But yet, what I see is that's not what's happening. An observation that I've made in my life is that it seems to me that the hardest place to let my worship of God change me is in my most intimate relationships. See, I can come to church and I can put on the smile and I can do the how you doing fine thing with the best of them. You know, I can shake hands, and I can be, you know, I, I can do that. You know, and I, I can even pull off being the great guy at the ball games most of the time. I can pull off, you know, except when it gets really close. I can do that, you know. And, you know or, and, and maybe even sometimes, man, I wish my dad was like your dad. Wouldn't that be, you know, I can pull that guy off. Are you like that? You can be that good guy at work, and everybody thinks you've got it all together. You can be that guy in the community that people look to, but then when you get home, is that who you are? Does your relationship with God affect your everyday life? What I've found, the closer you are to people, the more difficult it is to maintain holiness. You know, when you hear info that you're not sure about, if you've got a really best friend, have you ever noticed how easy it comes out of your mouth to them? Or how you're less patient with your? How you're less patient with your own children than you are with the person sitting in the pew next to you. Or how sometimes you're most unkind to the person God has given you as a partner. Guys, our faith should affect all aspects of our life. It especially should affect our relationship with those who are closest to us. If our worship is real... It should affect those intimate relationships. And oftentimes it doesn't. And oftentimes we don't even try to make our faith affect those areas of our life. If you have your Bible, we're going to be looking at Malachi 2, starting in verse 10. And here God addresses his displeasure with this this problem in the people of Israel. Now, if you remember from last week, the structure of this book is that a question is posed by God. Haven't I loved you? And they said, how have you loved us? And God goes into that. He poses six questions through the book of Malachi. And in verse 10, he starts out saying, don't all of us have one father? God speaking, don't all of us have one father? Didn't one God create us? And the answer is obviously, well, yes, that's true. Yes, we have one Father. Yes, we have one Creator. And then he basically says, then why aren't you acting like it? In the next verse, listen to what he says. Why then do we act treacherously against one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Now, as I read this, I almost hear a mom talking to your her family. You know, a family that's fought over, you know... Uh, money, or they fought over when you're going to get together on holidays, or they fought over who got better treatment growing up, And, and the mom says, aren't we all one family? Didn't we grow up together? Aren't we supposed to love one another? Why are we treating each other treacherously? The main point is of this passage, you say you have one God, and yet you are not treating each other like it. Now, your Bible might use the word treacherously, or faithlessly, or unfaithful. If your Bible uses the word unfaithful, I want you to understand, he's not talking about unfaithful as in you are unfaithful to work, or you are unfaithful to your homework. He's talking about unfaithful as you are unfaithful to your spouse. That type of unfaithful. The Hebrew word used five times in the passage we're going to look at today is the Hebrew word bagad. That word means treacherously or unfaithful, but it really means unfaithful, or to stab in the back. Uh, it, it's like when we say we worship God, but then don't treat others who are close to us well, it's as if we're stabbing God in the back. Or we might say that we're driving the nails deeper into the hands. This truth that we'll find today is anytime we live in a way that's unfaithful to his name, we're acting treacherously or betraying God. And that's true of what we send on Facebook or email or when we yell at our kids or when we gossip about another or when we don't love our spouse. But however you, this fleshes out in your life, in the book of Malachi, there are two specific ways that the people of were betraying God. One of those ways is they were marrying unbelievers notice verse 11 judah has acted treacherously and a detestable thing has been done in israel and in jerusalem for for judah has profaned the lord's sanctuary which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign god now i want to focus in on that phrase daughter of a foreign god In years gone by, the church has misunderstood what was going on in the Old Testament. Maybe not recently, but in our history, the church has said, well, this is about race and ethnicity. And it says that you shouldn't marry someone of another race. That is not what this verse says. They were taking this from Deuteronomy chapter 7. In Deuteronomy 7, the law of Moses came and it says, don't intermarry with them. Don't give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons because they will turn your sons away from me to worship other gods. What he's saying there is is that believers, people of faith, the people of Israel, should not marry people who were not of faith and not believers. Now, when they took these daughters and did this God was displeased notice in Malachi 2 verse 12 to the man who does this God ain't happy may the Lord cut off any descendants from the tents of Jacob even if they present offerings even if they come and worship now the point for us I believe is that that Even though we're not a part of the Old Covenant, we're under this obligation that believers are to marry believers. Christians, I believe, should not marry non-Christians. Now, I want to take you to the New Testament, because some of you would say, you can't make that point from the Old Testament. That's Old Testament. We don't live under those laws, yada, 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 yada. Okay, well, let's go to the New Testament then. In the New Testament, uh, we find in 2 Corinthians 6.14 these words. Don't be mismatched with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with unrighteousness or what fellowship does light have with darkness. Now, you might not recognize this verse, but for those of you who were raised in church, you probably heard this verse this way. Do not be unequally yoked. Some of y'all grew up in the same church I did. Y'all memorized that. Uh, This picture is of the unequally yoked is a, a, a picture of two animals being hooked up together to a plow, and they would work simultaneously together for better production. Well, the picture that Paul is trying to help us understand in 2 Corinthians is you don't want to hook a mule with an ox because that'll get you nowhere. And what he's talking about is believers, we should not hook our life to an unbeliever. Uh, What does righteousness and lawlessness have in common? Now, he's not saying that we shouldn't have relationships with people who don't believe. Of course we do. We have friends with people who don't believe. I get that. You know, we we can hang out with people who don't believe. Jesus befriended sinners. We should, too. But there is a level where this is dangerous, and the Bible says don't cross that line because you'll end up in a mess. When I was a youth minister back when I was 18, I was 18 to 20 being a youth minister. Crazy, I know. But I was working with teenagers, and I had this one girl in my youth group. She was about 16 years old, and she was on fire for Jesus. Beautiful little girl bringing kids with her, working in Bible school, telling people about Jesus, respected her parents. She was an awesome kid. But then I noticed things started to shift when I would ask her to help out. She would, I don't think so. I got other things to do. And when I I started noticing that she was starting to become kind of rude to her parents a little bit, and she was not showing up to youth group anymore, and I I thought, what is going on? And of course, I knew what was going on. She had a boyfriend who didn't do the church thing, didn't do the Jesus thing. And her mom comes to me one day, and she comes to me and says, Nick, I need you to go talk to... And I thought, you go talk to her. (laughs) You know, (laughs) That's what I thought. But being the higher gun, I guess, I went and I talked to her. And I I said, friend, I said, what are you doing? You're not anywhere near the Christian you were just weeks ago. You were on fire for the Lord, and now you seem so far. And she said something to me that day that I'll never forget. She said, I know he's not a believer, but I'm trying to win him to Jesus. Now, that sounds so sweet, and it sounds so spiritual, and she might have even fooled herself into believing this case, but when she told me that, I knew she just flat out lied to me. Because and by the way, there's never been such a thing as missionary dating. If that were the case, every ugly guy would have a pretty girl. Because I guarantee you he'd say yes. Yeah, I get baptized. You know, I guarantee you. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm just trying to win him to Jesus. No, you think he's cute. Be honest with yourself. Okay? But here's the problem when you connect yourself at that level with an unbeliever, you put yourself in a dangerous spot because you never know when you're going to fall. Fall in love. You see, we date people and we think, oh, no, I won't go there. Well, you really, I don't know if you completely 100% control some of that feeling thing you have going on in your life and be careful because what happens you connect yourself too closely you will start to build one life together the bible says the two become one flesh and then they start developing this life this one life together and when a believer marries a non-believer it's like they start working on this one house with a different set of blueprints And one starts in one corner of the house, and the other starts in another corner of the house, and they start working together, and at first it seems fine, and look what we're building together, and it's going so awesome, and it's going so great, but then all of a sudden those blueprints collide. And then you have a mess which the structure won't stand on. So the Bible says, be careful. And you might say, well, that was then. You can't say that was then. That's the New Testament. That's who we are. We're people of the New Testament. By the way, everything you learn about Jesus, you learn from the New Testament. And the New Testament speaks to us and says, be careful. Now, how do you apply this? Well, if you're married to a non-believer, what are you supposed to do? Well, I guess I'm supposed to go get... No, you're supposed to stay put. You're supposed to stay in that marriage. The Bible's clear about this. Maybe you weren't supposed to marry them, but you have married them. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12, but I, not the Lord, and that doesn't mean that this is not Scripture. It means Jesus just didn't teach on this while he was on earth. Paul says, I, not the Lord, say to the rest, if any brother has an unbelieving wife and she's willing to live with him, which is a miracle for a woman to be willing to live with a man in and of itself, I guess, but if she's willing to live with him, then what? he must not leave her. Then he goes on to say to the woman, also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he's willing to live with her, she must not leave her husband. The Bible says if you're married to an unbeliever and that's where you are, stay there. Make the best of that situation. Love one another. Love your spouse as the Lord has loved you, as you love yourself. That's what you are to do. But if you're single, God is calling you to hold out for a believer. It is better to be single in God's will than married outside of it. Guys, I will tell you this, and this is the truth. Marriage is the best thing in the world when it's by God's design, and it is the worst when it's not. Now, what if you're dating a non believer? What about dating a non believer? Now, I don't want to go beyond the commands of Scripture. I know that's dangerous, so I want you to hear this is Nick's opinion, okay? Nick's going to give you his opinion of what the Scripture says. You can dismiss this if you want to, if you, but in my humble but accurate opinion, let me share it with you <laughs> what I think is right. I do not believe it is right for a believer to date an unbeliever because you don't know when you will fall head over heel. Now, that doesn't mean you don't go out and drink coffee with people to get to know people. That doesn't mean that. that. doesn't mean that you don't go out with a group of friends. It doesn't mean that you don't go to a UK game with your group of friends and another person. You know, I mean, that does mean you don't go to a Louisville game. But it doesn't mean that you don't do that. But watch your feelings. Never let yourself develop feelings for a non-believer. Don't let them in that close. Because you might start building a house that won't hold up. See, this is really a heart issue. You're supposed to love God with all you got. Does everybody agree that that's what a Christian is supposed to do? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. Love your neighbors yourself. That doesn't sound like a Nick thing. That sounds kind of like a Jesus thing. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. So I'm going to do that, and I'm going to let somebody into my life who says that's a fairy tale. I'm going to let someone in my life who says that that should make no difference. I'm going to let... Of course not! That's crazy! We should never do that. Let me encourage you to honor and serve God by exclusively dating Christians. Now, God's not only concerned with what happens before your marriage. Your love for God should affect what happens after you get married as well. And here in Malachi, they were wrongfully divorcing their wives. Now, again... The issue is our relationship with God should affect the most intimate relationships, but he uses two examples. Number one, they were dating the wrong type of folks and marrying them. And number two, when they did get married, they was not treating their wives well. Let's look what the Bible says. Malachi 2, verse 14. And yet you ask, for what reason? Uh, Why is God mad with us? Why does he say we've acted treacherously? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have acted treacherously against her, though she was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. Now, God takes marriage seriously. Listen to how he describes it. First of all, he says she is the wife of your youth. Man, when you were young and those feelings were happening, you connected y'all's lives together. And then he says she's your partner. Your marriage partner. God has created the two to become one flesh. And then he says, she's your wife by covenant. You gave your word. I'll never forget the night I was married, and this doesn't sound very romantic, but I will never forget it, and I'll tell you guys how seriously the Lord impressed on my heart to take my marriage vows. I was standing out in the hallway where the, the groomsmen are all teasing the groom. You know? I was getting ready to walk out, and I asked the guys to leave me and the preacher alone for a second. And the preacher was the guy who baptized me, who I was called to ministry under. His name was Scott Ford, and I looked Scott in the eye, and I said, Scott, I want you to understand something. The vow I'm making today, I understand, is a vow that I will keep until I die. I make a covenant before God, and I wanted you to be a witness that I take it that serious today that 's the way God says and, uh, that, that our marriage is it 's this covenant, and notice how it, 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 notice how this covenant is affecting the relationship with God, and this is another thing you do you cover the lord 's altars with tears you 're treating your wife like she 's dirt, but you cover the lord 's altar with tears, you, you weep and you groan and, and you look up and you wonder why he doesn 't receive your offerings, and he 's not listening to your prayers. Because if you really want to affect God, it doesn't matter what you do when we're singing. It doesn't matter how well you listen to the guy who's standing up here in the front if it doesn't affect the way you live when you leave this place. That's what was going on there. He's not accepting their offering. And it's not just because it wasn't their best, as we learned in Malachi chapter 1. It's because they weren't living like they believe in God. God's not interested in how much we cry at the altar if it's not transforming how we live Outside this place And because they weren't treating their wives right God said I'm not listening to you Now you might say okay that's Old Testament preacher Is it? As I span across the whole Bible I see it over and over even in the New Testament In 1 Peter uh, Chapter 3 verse 7 Husbands in the same way live with your wives With an understanding of their weaker nature Now I know I lost some, about half of you Right there <laughs> I get that But by the way, we all believe this. Our whole society believes this. They say they don't. They want to puff their chest out. But why do we have an LPGA and a PGA? Or an NBA and a WNBA? You know, right now in the debate last night, if you watched, they were talking about should women go into the draft? You know, and every one of them said, well, if they can meet the requirements of the physical requirements it takes for combat, because we all recognize there's a difference between the way men are made up and women are made up. We get that. We understand. Now, this passage is not saying that husbands are smarter than wives. We prove that daily. <laughs> Most of us married women who are much more competent than we are, much, more, much smarter than we are, except in their selection of men. But, but God, in His grace, let us marry them. And the Bible says if you are married, be careful how you treat your wives. Listen, she is the co-heir of grace. She's equal with you. She's co-heir beside you. Not man, woman in faith. Not woman, man in faith. You are to be co-heirs in this. And then listen to what he says in the next verse. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives so that your prayers will go unhindered. Y'all connecting the dots here? The Old Testament, they couldn't understand why their offerings wasn't making a difference with God. God says, because it's not affecting, your love for me is not affecting your life. Here in the New Testament, men, you better love your wives. Why would God listen to you in anything else if he can't trust you with that which is most intimate to you? Now, verse 15 and 16, back in Malachi chapter 2. It's really hard to translate. It's all over the map. So we'll start with verse 15. In verse 15, he says, Did the one God make us with a remnant of his life breath? When God made us, he put his image in us. and, 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 and In fact, everything God made was made so that we would give him glory. Everything is. I don't know how many of y'all woke up this morning, you walked outside and just that. Man, wasn't it beautiful this morning? It's just like... That coolness just sparked my worship. Thank you, God, for a beautiful day. Thank you for the sunshine. Thank you. That's what creation's supposed to do. That's what Romans chapter 1 tells us, that, that every man is without excuse because all creation testifies to the goodness of God. We can walk outside and see that God is a great God. Well, God made you so that other people would see Him. You're to reflect His glory. He put His image within you. Uh, this is why we talk about people and say we're made in the image of God. And then listen to what the scripture says in the next part of this verse. And what does the one God seek from his image bearers? A godly offspring. God wants those who are redeemed to produce. <laughs> he wants those who are saved and are godly, he wants them to look like it. He wants a godly offspring uh, now, verse 16 is is tricky, and before we put it up on the screen, but go back one, before we put it up here, I, I just want to tell you this is a hard, hard verse to translate. It's so hard that Bible translators who are brilliant don't know what to do with it. Because the Hebrew starts with four words. That's it. He, uh, he hates, he sins. That's the Hebrew words there. He hates. He sends. The problem is, is we don't really know who does the hating and who does the sending. Because the Hebrew word doesn't say. So when I show you this verse, your verse will be translated in one of two ways in your Bible. By the way, I encourage you all to bring your Bibles and follow along because you might learn something. In, listen to what he says. 216. I hate divorce, says the Lord. Who hates divorce, according to this translation... The Lord hates divorce. Straightforward. Pretty easy. That is one way to translate it. And it's absolutely a legitimate way to translate it. But it's also legitimate to translate And that's the New American Standard Bible. Here's the Homan Christian Standard Bible. It's also a legitimate way. If he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel. Now, who's doing the hating and the divorcing there? The man. So which is it, preacher? Well, yes. When a man divorces a wife, it's as if he hates her. And God sits above and says, I hate that. I I hate it. Now, what I want you to hear, and please be patient with me, God doesn't hate divorced people. He hates divorce. The reason is because, first, it dishonors him, Uh, the the symbol God has used to reveal himself to humanity is, says, I'm going to love you like a husband loves his wife. And when divorce enters into a culture and into a picture and into a family, all of a sudden people don't understand bride of Christ terminology and faithfulness terminology. It's just, it's the reality. So God says, I hate that because that undermines how I've revealed myself to you. I love you like a husband loves a wife, God says, there's other reasons God hates divorce. He knows what it does to kill kids. I mean, my goodness, it, it, it fills a child's life with uncertainty. It uproots them. They're juggled back and forth. And then God hates it because of what it does in churches. Churches are left in an awkward spot whenever there's a divorce. Who are we going to let come and who are we not? Because you know, we know the church ain't big enough for the two of them in most cases. How do we work this out? now I want you to hear me if you've been divorced you know the tragedy and you know the pain and I'm not trying to pile on in no way and the church has been guilty of treating divorced people like second class citizens for years and if you've ever experienced that in church I'm sorry I'm really sorry Uh, it's not the intent I hope of this church and I know it's not the intent of this preacher God can redeem and restore whether divorce was your fault or not but I will say, I think God hates all divorce. But I don't think that means that it's unavoidable. Jesus, uh, divorce is definitely not God's design. It's not. I mean, it's not. When you said, I do, God didn't say, yeah, for a little while. No, I mean, no. God's design was it to be for life, but... With that said, sometimes divorce is unavoidable. Jesus made that clear in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. He said when sexual infidelity happens, then divorce is permissible. In 1 Corinthians 7, which we were reading in a minute ago, interesting chapter, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul spoke of desertion as a reason for divorce. You know, you have a believing spouse and the unbeliever leaves. They just can't live with it. I don't want that. that. Then you've got grounds. Craig Blomberg, a conservative Christian author, a really conservative Christian author, said he thinks that we have taken these two permissible instances of divorce and have made them like a litmus test. I think that's unfair. I think there's a principle. Any case in which the marriage bond has been irreparably harmed or broken, I think divorce is permissible. And I will give you an example. I do not think a woman should stay in a marriage where she's getting beaten. I think divorce is absolutely permissible in that situation. Does God hate that situation? Absolutely God hates that situation. Did God want that divorce to happen? No, God didn't want that divorce to happen. But does God allow it? Of course God allows that. Now, in Malachi's day... This wasn't because their wives were being unfaithful. This wasn't because they were unbelieving necessarily. It wasn't because there was abuse going on in the situation. They were just tired of their wives. They wanted to trade in their aging wives for a young newer model. Hey, she burnt the peas. Get rid of her. You know. See, that's what's going on here. It's just not as exciting. You know, the Corvette quit working, so I'm gonna try a new wife. You know, that's that's what's going on here in Malachi. These men are acting unfaithfully, and they're betraying their wife, and God says, this is a tragedy. Now let's bring this home to us today, okay? Here's the main point I want you to leave with. If your worship is not affecting your most intimate relationships, you wasted your time this morning. we come here for an audience of one, and it's not me, and it's not Kent, and it's not the person sitting on the pew next to you, and it's not your mom, and it's not your husband or wife. We came here for an audience of one. We came here for God to be pleased with the fact that we have stopped during our week to acknowledge, God, I need you. God, I want everyone to know I love you. God, I would be nowhere without you. That's what we stop and we do this for each week corporately to say we need the Lord. But if your worship is not affecting what the Lord has given you, don't expect your prayers to be answered. Your prayers will be hindered. You can cry at the altar all you want. You can give as big an offering as you have. You can sing at the top of your lungs and you can Amen, me. But if your faith's not influencing your home, It's useless. Now, how do we keep that from happening? Well, we get an answer in Malachi. It, it, we find a solution here in this passage. So watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherously against the wife of your youth. Be careful. Don't act treacherously against the, your wife. Watch yourself. And that's kind of the answer. For a lot of folks, watch yourself, set safeguards. You know, set safeguards on your internet. Build in accountability partners. Don't give the devil a chance. Don't ride alone with women. Here here's the problem we run into. When we build walls and fences. Okay, everybody, everybody know where I'm going with this. Watch yourself, build walls and fences. The human heart will always find their way over walls and around fences. See, that's the story of the entire Old Testament. Our heart's a mess. It's deceitful above all things. We're not good deep down inside, as some would want you to believe. Deep down inside, we're deceitful, selfish people. And the whole story of the Old Testament is God says... Yeah, you've fallen out of the garden, but I'm going to make you a special people. Okay, you've ignored my commandments, all right. I'm going to send you into the exile, but I'll bring you back into a promised land. Okay, you're going to live in the promised land and you're going to worship other gods? Okay, I'm going to send some struggles your way and and people will fight against you. But if you'll repent and prophets raise up and tell you to repent, if you'll repent to me, I'll, I'll take you back. And then they would just wander again and God carried them off into captivity again and they come back and every time they would try to build higher walls and bigger fences, but the walls and the fences never fixed their heart. And so the New Testament proclaims the gospel that the only way for your worship to be pure and your walk to be different and your relationships to stay intact as God intends is for what the New Testament says in Colossians chapter 3. If you've been raised with the Messiah, if you're born again, if God has come into your heart and done a new work in your heart and he's changed you and he's saved you, if you've been raised with the Messiah, seek that which is above. You want to bring God into your family? You can't just watch yourself. You've got to look to God and say, Oh, God, please help me love my kids. Please help me be patient with my family. Please help me honor you in the way that I work. Please help me honor you in the way that I live. Next verse. Set your minds on what is above, not on what is on earth. And then he says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with the Messiah. Guys, I want you to know this sermon was intended to bring home this point. How you live outside of church is a heart issue. We treat our wives treacherously if our heart is not right with Jesus. You only chase after that lost boy or girl because you've fallen in love with them more than you fall in love with him. We post trash and filth. Because our heart disregards Jesus' purity and beauty. You know why they wept at the altar and God ignored? Because, I mean, that's a pretty good question, isn't it? It seems kind of harsh, you know, for them to get emotional and cry and say, God, why aren't you listening to me? Why didn't God listen to me? And I'll tell you what I think the answer is. They had no intent to change. See, the New Testament introduces a concept of repentance. Do I still sin? Absolutely. The Bible says in 1 John, if we say that we have no sin, we lie and the truth is not in us. But it says, if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to cleanse us. Some people say, well, confession's good for the soul. No, 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 no. no. You can confess. It's not confession that's good for the soul. It's the trusting in Christ that's good for the soul. I confess my sin and I trust that Christ alone can make my heart new. And Christ alone can make me a new creation. And Christ alone can help me really love my wife. And Christ alone can help me be patient with my kids. And Christ alone can give me the ability to be an authentic, real person all the time. And not just a pretender on Sundays. So, I mentioned the New Testament teaches you that Concept of repentance. What is repentance? God, I'm so sorry that I took my eyes off of the one who saved me and put my eyes on things of the earth. I repent of that, God. Thank you, Lord, that you're patient with me. Thank you for saving me. That's the type of worship God's looking for. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, for your word and for the opportunity. To share it today. Lord, I pray that every person here heard clearly it is by grace we're saved, not of works. But then I pray they also heard you created us in Christ Jesus for good works so that we could bear your image wherever we are in our homes, in our marriage with our kids, at our work, wherever. God, help us to be a people who are a godly offspring, honoring our Heavenly Father. Thank you, Jesus, for making that possible. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.